morning, everybody. Great to see you. Derek's away this weekend, so we're going to have very few announcements. Um, but I should say at least these two things. There's a sheet in your bulletin. It's homework. So for those of you in a group or if you're not in a group, you can uh, use that because it tracks along with what we're going to talk about today. And it just allows you to kind of see a few more things than what you would see as we talk about it here this morning and go just a little bit deeper. There's even an extra credit section in there. I don't know who you uh, take the extra credit to to get you know, that accounted for, but there's an extra credit section in there. Another thing I want to say is just somebody came to me recently and they said they had no idea that the messages were actually on our website. So like Sunday this evening by about 6 or 7 o'clock, this message will be up on the website. That happens every single week. And we have about seven years' worth of messages that are on there that can be podcasts and other things. And they said, you know, you should really let people know that because we have a lot of people that travel. So I'm letting, there you go. I'm letting you know that now you know. So we're going to talk about, again, this is a part two in the life of Paul. We're looking at this person who many theologians call the greatest Christian who ever lived. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of uh, the books of the uh, New Testament. And uh, just this incredible figure. And what we began talking about him you know, last week was how hard-charging he was, how brilliant he was, knowledgeable he was, ambitious he was, and all the things he was doing. And he's headed to Damascus because he's persecuting Christians, throwing them in prison, putting them to death, all of these things that he's doing, and he gets knocked off his horse. And the title of the message this morning is called Finally. It's called Finally because we're going to talk a little bit about waiting this morning. We're talking about how Paul had to wait and I'm just guessing that maybe there's a few of us in this room that are waiting for something. We're waiting for God's will to be done in our life. We're waiting for some kind of fulfillment. We're waiting for something. And, you know, for the most part, we don't tend to like to wait. Waiting's not a special thing in my life. I don't look at it and say, yeah, I get to wait. You know, there's an there's a intersection near my house. And at the light, you know, for the longest time, there was this big sign up there that said, you know, I lost 30 pounds, you know, call this number. Finally, somebody took that sign down and they put up their own. They took the time to put up their own sign. They put up this big, huge sign that says, I lost 30 pounds waiting for this light to change. So waiting is just, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And so the title of the message is finally. So let's pray. And we're going to go over a couple highlights of Paul. And then we'll talk about Acts chapter 13 and how maybe that makes sense to our lives. Lord, whatever it is that you want to speak to each one of us, help us to hear it. Help us to respond to it prompt us holy spirit open our eyes let us see something new maybe we haven't seen it before maybe understood it before maybe you showed us many times before maybe today is the time that we finally say okay i'll do it whatever that might be god we offer that before you and ask that your will would be done in christ's name amen all right again so you know paul is about 30 years old when we find him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Mac, he's about 30 years old. And in his day, to be in, your thir- to be in your 30s, to be that age, this is like prime time. This is go time. This is time where you launch. Like if you have ambition for a career in Paul's day at the age of this is when you take off. Remember, some of you might know that Jesus Christ was 30 years old when he entered the ministry. So all I want you to understand by this is, this is a big time. This is a very special time. This is the time for him to move ahead, and he's a very ambitious guy, and he's brilliant. He gets knocked off his horse. Right? He goes to Damascus. He goes to this town called Damascus. Damascus still exists today. And he goes to this guy's house named Judas, and it tells us it's on Straight Street. That's what it tells in the text. And, you know, Straight Street today actually still exists in the city of Damascus. It's a street of a lot of winding, turning streets, but they've got a, one big street that's straight, and so they named it and still exists there today. So he goes there, and Ananias, very reluctant, like, wait a minute, God, uh, there's no way I'm going to go see this guy, you know, 
Paul because he's come here to actually kill me and everybody else who's a Christian. And so uh, God says, no, go. And uh, he goes. And then, uh, you know, Paul's there and kind of gets run out of that town after he talks to people about his conversion, about his receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. And he goes back to Jerusalem and he eventually has to leave there. And he goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 13. So you, Acts chapter 9, you read about him up till about three quarters of the way through, and then you, you, you don't hear anything else. And then he surfaces again in the 11th chapter of Acts. This timeline is actually critically important. He surfaces again when there's this huge, there's this huge revival that breaks out in the church of Antioch. Antioch is the place, the very first place that anybody was ever called a Christian. You call yourself a Christian day, it's because of what happened in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch. It resolved the revival there. And so Barnabas, Barnabas, this guy who was like a bridge builder for Paul, when Paul first entered Jerusalem and everybody thought, wait a minute, you're the guy that stoned Stephen. You're the guy that was arresting people. You were the guy that was going house to house and city to city arresting people. And the disciples, you know, they didn't want anything to do with him. Barnabas was the guy who went out and found Paul and brought him into the disciples. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He's like a bridge builder. You've heard a lot of son ofs in your life. This guy's a son of encouragement. And so he goes out, brings him in. So he goes again from Antioch to Tarsus to find Paul because he needs help. And I put that verse there for you. Uh, it's Acts eleven twenty five. We were just told simply Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for him. And that's when he surfaces again. And then it goes quiet. All of uh, chapter 12, you don't hear anything about. And then all of a sudden, in Acts chapter thing, it's like whoosh in Acts chapter 13. Paul takes center stage. And from that point to the end of the book, he is central. And even historians who are not studying church history, just general historians, say the Apostle Paul had a clear impact upon this world historically. He's a major, major figure. Now let's read how it starts in Acts 13, verses 2 and 3. This is the beginning of his first missionary journey. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them to do. So there's a call on their life. There's something for them to do. God has a plan. God has a purpose. He's got a call. All right. So verse three. So after they fasted and they prayed, they placed their hands on them and they send them off. Now, here's the story of their first missionary trip. They go to this island off the coast of Israel in the eastern Mediterranean called Cyprus. Many of you have heard of the island of Cyprus. And this is where they go. So it says this. They traveled through the whole island, Cyprus, until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. We read this this past week in our staff meeting in Josh Shed. Josh Shed, this is like the pirate Jesus, you know, Bar-Jesus. So uh, anyway, they meet this guy. He was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul is an intelligent man. I always thought it was interesting that he tells us about this guy in leadership. He's an intelligent man. It's great to know. And they sent for Barnabas and Saul because they wanted to hear the word of God. He wanted to. The governor wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 8. But Elimus, that's the Bar-Jesus character, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Limus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind. And for a time, you're going to be unable to see the light of the sun, 
immediately a mist of darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. i got to stop right there. Would that not be cool to be able to do? You know, the next time somebody irritates you in your neighborhood or at work, would that be just awesome if you could just, you are a child of the devil. I don't know if anybody here thinks the way I do sometimes. I'm just thinking that might be kind of cool to actually pull off. All right, so he does this. Man, a guy goes blind. And then this last verse, very critical. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. The Roman governor of the island of Cyprus places his belief in God. You know, it's interesting. The archaeology tells us that there was a governor, a Roman governor, of the island of Cyprus called Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus had a son, a grandson actually, who became the first Roman senator from his city appointed to the Senate in Rome. And that his grandson's mother, Sergius Paulus's daughter, was a Christian. That's what archaeology tells us. It's fascinating. Confirming the history that we read right here. All right, what do we want to talk about this? Here's what I want to say. There's a lot of more great, great stories in Acts chapter 13. I mean, it's equally as awesome. I want to stop right here. I want to stop here for a specific reason. There is something that we need to see that is happening and understand that is happening here as we begin Acts chapter 13 that I believe is important for all of us and will be very relevant for every single one of our lives. That's, that's what I'm thinking. We've got to flip back. So if you're following in a Bible, or if not, I put it on your blue brochure, Acts 9.15. So we go back a couple chapters, and here Paul is back in Damascus just after he got knocked off the horse, after he's headed to Damascus because he's going to imprison all kinds of Christians and put people to death and on and on and on. Here is what Ananias says to Paul right there at the beginning in Acts chapter 9. He says, the Lord said to Ananias, all right, go. So God's speaking to Ananias. I want you to go. What, I, what, what, are, you, what are you going to tell Paul? Here's what I want you to tell Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And their kings. This is critically important. So what we have here is Ananias... God speaks to him. He reluctantly goes, but he goes. And he tells Paul, you are to carry the message of Jesus Christ to Roman kings, to everybody who is in positions of power within the government. You're going to do this. Is what, this is the call that is on your life. Like You hated Christians, murdering Christians. Now you're going to tell the world about Jesus Christ, and you're going to even do that in the audience of many of the kings. This is critically important. What we might not realize, unless you've been a very careful student of kind of a timeline of Paul, you might have thought, Acts chapter 9, the road to Damascus, he goes in Damascus, he has problems there, he leaves there, he goes to Jerusalem, he has problems there, and he goes to Tarsus, and then Barnabas finds him in Tarsus, and everything's fine, and he goes and he preaches on Cyprus to the Roman king. That's not how it happened. If you do a little digging, you'll realize that when he first went to Damascus, He didn't stay there. He left for three years. He tells us that in Galatians chapter 1. So for Bible scholars who have pieced together the life of Paul, here is what happens. Paul goes to Damascus. He's there for a short time. He leaves and he goes out to a desert. Why does he go to the desert? He goes there for three years. Many people speculate, what's going on? Why is he going out there? Well, we're not exactly sure, but here's one thing we absolutely know about the desert. There's not a lot happening in the desert. It's a very quiet place. Remember, Paul's on the fast track. He's this superstar celebrity. 
right? A lot of attention. Everybody wants a piece of them. Everybody wants Paul on their schedule. Very popular. His phone is ringing off the hook. He's rolling. He's advancing far above all the others. So he is, he is a busy, 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 busy guy. And he's very ambitious. So now we see that he goes to the desert and there's no cell phones ringing. He's off of everybody's schedule and he's got him and God and there's basically nobody else out there. Now, maybe he went out there for three years because Jesus hung out with his disciples for three years and he's thinking, I'm going to go out for three years, just me and God. But I'm going to get alone. I'm going to be very quiet. When he's done with the three years, apparently he comes back to Damascus and immediately stirs up a problem there because people don't want to hear the message he has to preach. And so they have to help him escape because the city gates are guarded. So they lower him out of a window that is in the wall of the gates. And he escapes to Jerusalem. And then he has to escape to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Tarsus. And here's something. I've always known that he spent three years in the desert. I understood that. But what I did not realize is he goes back to Tarsus. I didn't know how long he did. He went back there for seven years to his hometown. Here's something else we need to understand about his time in Tarsus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists for us, maybe you've read this before, all the beatings, all the shipwrecks, all the problems that he went through. If you add up all the times that he went through floggings and beatings and all this kind of stuff and then you read acts 13 to the end of the chapter the numbers don't add up like there's more there, there weren't as many beatings in 13 to 28 so we figure when did he go through all of these i mean we know where he went through some of them but not all of them and so scholars pretty much for the most part most part think it was during those seven years that he was in his hometown that he was severely rejected like he's the hometown hero when they sent him off to jerusalem he was the toast of the town. He was the guy that was going to go, you know, most likely to succeed. And now he's coming back preaching Jesus. And they don't like it. And so they beat him. They flog him. They reject him. So probably when Barnabas finds him, Paul is pretty much all by himself. Some people think that he was probably living outside the city in a cave somewhere. But he's definitely not preaching to kings, which is what I want you to understand. He's definitely not preaching to kings. A decade of darkness. He spends the first three years getting quiet before God. He spends the next seven years experiencing rejection and wondering, God, did you ever speak to me about this? Some of us are here this morning. God's put something on your heart. God's put a call on your heart. God's put something on your heart to take place. And sometimes in our lives, if you're like me, there are times that I'm totally sure of God's call. I'm like, yep, yeah, yep, that, I'm, ooh, man, this is going to happen. I believe God's going to... And there's other times, and they could be like within a 24-hour period of time, separated. I'm like, I'm totally unsure if any of this is ever going to happen. I've got to imagine that Paul's in that place. Particularly when his friends and his family from his hometown are rejecting him and beating him and telling him he's a big loser. A very, very difficult time. The decade of darkness that Paul goes through. Now, here's the thing. In order for us, everybody to fulfill that calling that is on every one of our lives, that thing that God's put on your heart, that thing that you've prayed about, the thing that God's called you to, the thing that you desire, whatever. If it is of God, if it is of God, in order for that to come to pass, you're going to have to take time to get quiet and go out into the desert with God and to wait on God. Like, if we think that we can continue just to be all get out busy like we are, Run, run, run with our schedules. Fill our schedules up. Do all the busyness of life. Be distracted like crazy. You know what I'm saying? 
if we think that we can't take some desert time, if we, we don't take that desert time, that somehow that God is going to fulfill that, that all that's going to come to pass, then we would be ignoring so much of what we see in the Scriptures. Because we see Abraham and Sarah taking their time in the desert. We see Joseph taking his time in the desert. We see Moses. We see Elijah. We see David. We see Jesus. Over and over again, people who God fulfills these wonderful things in their lives, and they, they happen, they come to pass, they first go through the desert time and repeated desert times. But they're getting away from the cell phones and the laptops and the schedules and everything going on, and they're in a desert, and they're just quiet before God. No distractions. Waiting on God is vitally important, and there's so many scriptures that talk about that. I want to give you some. First, I want to give you a quote by a guy by the name of John Ortberg. He's a pastor out in California. He says this. Biblically, waiting is not something that we have to do until we get what we want. I'll say that again. Biblically, waiting is not something that we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. Now, let's listen to some of these scriptures I put on your outline. Isaiah 40, 31, famous verse on waiting. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What is that saying? It's saying for those of us who long to finally fly with that thing that's in our heart that we say, God, please, and you know what that is for you. God, please, I'm praying that this would come to pass for me. Why isn't it come to pass? We've prayed. I've talked to you, God, about this so many times. I'm, I, I'm seeking to fly and to soar like an eagle with this thing finally. God says, Wait first, get out in the desert, get quiet. Spend some quiet time with God. And then after you have done that and God has prepared you, then I will release you to soar and to fly like an eagle. Everybody, there are things that have happened in my life that are part of God's plan for my life. I am thoroughly convinced that those things would have never taken place unless I had taken that time to get quiet with God before him. Paul, I'm thoroughly convinced, would have never had an opportunity in Acts 13 to stand before a king unless he first took three years out in the desert. That's how critically important it is. And we see that, we see that modeled to us over and over. We are just so wired to be busy. And we think in our business, somehow all these things that God wants to do are going to happen. And sometimes I do this. I miss the critically important piece. The getting quiet with God and going to the desert is not like an add-on. It's not like a side dish. It's like the main course in the middle of the plate. It's vital, important. It has to happen. Not maybe happen. It has to happen. And those things that have happened in my life, they're God's will, God's plan, would have never happened. I don't believe they would ever happen for Paul. And what I'm suggesting to you today is they're not going to happen for you. So as you're there and you're frustrated and you're waiting, think about making some time in the desert to get alone and to get quiet. And think about the disciples and how Jesus comes up to them, you know, the famous thing, you know, drop your nets and follow me. Or Matthew, the tax cutter, leave your tax booth and follow me. You're thinking, hey, man. You know, that's great for them back then, but I can't just like drop my job and walk off because that would be totally irresponsible. I can't do that. Can't swing such a thing. I understand. But we could 
for a day or a weekend drop our cell phones and follow God. We could drop our laptops, drop our schedules, drop our busyness, drop all the stuff that just distracts us and go away. Just like We could do that, probably. We could figure out a way to do that. We could pray about that. Say, God, you know, I'm having a hard time spending time with you in the desert. I'm having a hard time finding time in my schedule. Would you help me find time in my schedule? Now, I want to warn you. I'm going to warn you about that one real quick. My suggestion, I don't know if it's the right thing or wrong thing, I'm going to say it anyway. It might be better for you to just plan the time. Because if you're having a hard time finding the time and you say that to God, he might find some very creative ways to find time for you. You know what I'm talking about? So, just saying. Saying, you know, you start praying, God, clear my schedule. He said, okay, good. I'll, I'll clear you. I got you covered. I'll clear your schedule for you. It's not a problem. Uh, Isaiah 49, 23. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. I've got to imagine as Paul is in his hometown of Tarsus and everybody's rejecting him and saying, you left a hero. Look what you've come back. You're an absolute failure. Why did you do that? And they're beating him and flogging him and all this stuff that he's probably feeling a lot of shame. I know that when I have been waiting for God's will in my life, there's been times when I've just felt deep shame and embarrassment. Where people have come along and said, well, God's not going to, you know, you're not going to do You keep waiting for this to happen, John. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Wise up. Shame and embarrassment. When we wait upon God, God's saying we'll never be put to shame. You have to have a lot of trust to wait on God. You have to have a lot of trust in God to wait on God. Finally, Hosea 12, 6. But as for you, return to your God, hold fast to love and justice, and continually and wait continually for your God. You know, Paul had a lot of incredible visions and understanding of what God was going to do in his life and what God was revealing to him about his word. And most Bible scholars believe it was during that decade of darkness that many of that understanding, many of that revelation from God happened during that time of waiting. We see this in so many people's lives that they take the time to wait. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a very famous parable, what we call the parable of the four soils. Basically, what he is saying in this parable is that every single one of us is reacting to God in one of these four ways. We either reacting to God, number one, accepting God's will, God's plan, or number two, rejecting it. Number three, responding very quickly to it, but then like saying a week later, a month later, what plan was that? What, would, what did you tell for me to do, right? Or the fourth, in which I believe at least the people I bump into all the time is the most popular. And the fourth one is this. The fourth soil is the one that the plan comes to, God's will comes to, but all the worries of life, the demanding schedule, all the distractions strangle it out. That's what happens in my life most of the time. I believe there's things that God still wants to do in my life, and I'm thoroughly convinced that those things are absolutely never going to happen unless I plan some time in the desert. And that's what I'd like you to write down on your sheets there if you could. Would you plan your time in the desert? It is critically important. Plan a trip to the desert. It is in the desert where it's just you and God, and you're away from the distractions, and you're focused in on God, that God prepares you. 
It was during that decade of darkness that Paul went through that God prepared him so that he could speak to the king, that he was ready to do it. He wasn't ready to do it. Look, I always think I'm ready for whatever God, you know, wants to do in my life. I'm like, well, Paul, God knocks him off the horse on the road to Damascus. I'm sure he's probably thinking to himself, okay, you want me to talk to Gentile kings? Let's go. I'm ready right now. I'm ready. And God says, no, you're not. You're nowhere near ready. We're going to take a whole decade off and get you ready. There's things that I think when God first spoke to me many years ago, hey, prompted me, you know, to do this or what. Put something in my heart. God's put things in your heart. Think, okay, I'm ready right now. Most of the time, we're not ready. There's a lot of preparation that needs to happen. And that's what happens in the desert. Look, take a weekend and go to a monastery. Go to a place where there's total silence and just you and God hang out. Take a weekend retreat. Take a day off in the middle of your week and just get alone somewhere. No TVs, no cell phones, no laptops, no schedules. Let me beeping you. Let everybody know, you know, this is my day. Take two or three, whatever. Find the time in the desert so that God can do what needs to happen inside of you, what needs to happen inside of me, so that his great plan can take place in your life. But do not allow something so insignificant as your schedule to keep you from that great thing God wants to do. Some of us, this is the last straw. This is the last step in what God needs to do. He needs to get you alone in the desert. This is the one final thing. You're like, oh God, if you would just break through this thing so I could finally experience your will. And he's like, if you would just take a moment out in the desert with me, we'd be ready to go. Don't let that hold you back. Plan your time in the desert. Second thing I'd like you to write down is this. Very important. Reject the lies. A lot of lies, and we've talked about them. There's a whole lot of lies. All the lies that he went through in Tarsus, you're good for nothing, you're a failure, we sent you off to be king of the world, to go to the, you know, to the, top, of the top of the list. And look what you've done. You've believed in Jesus Christ, you're a failure, live out here in this cave, we're going to pull you out about every week and beat you just for good measure, and then turn you back in. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible life. Now, as we catch up with Paul in Acts chapter 13, I think this is fascinating. He's been dealing with all this stuff. He finally, after a decade of darkness, everybody, he's going to finally preach to the Roman king. He's going to preach to the governor of Cyprus. This is it. This is finally the moment that he's been waiting for, right? What is the final thing that happens right before he gets to preach to the Roman governor? The pirate Jesus shows up. The bar Jesus character comes in filled with deceit and trickery and scheming. And what does it say he does? He starts lying. He starts lying. He starts lying to the Roman king. Hey, look, you don't want to hear this guy. Paul, he doesn't want to hear you. Get out. You have no place here. He tries to interfere. It's like an all-out blitz at the last minute. Doesn't that happen with us? Yes, God, you're going to do this in my life. Oh, God. God's never going to do this in my life. And we waver back and forth, and there's all these lies that are in there. Does God have a plan for my life? Does he really? Does he see me? Is he listening to me? Are you there? These kind of things that run through, these are the kind of things that are running through Paul's mind as well. And he has to quit listening and believing the lies. He's got to move forward. Listen, when it comes to calling, you want to think about just a second here. 
all the different calls that we see that happen in the Bible. We think about a guy by the name of Moses. So God calls him, I want you to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Why does God give us that story? He gives us that story for a number of important reasons. Builds our faith. We have an understanding of the story of the Bible. We get to connect a lot of dots. I want to suggest you one piece, one portion that is critically important in that story of why God gives that to us. Because God has a call on the life of Moses. And the reason you and I, one of the reasons you and I read about that is because God is, God is trying to say to us loud and clear, I have a call on your life as well. That's why the story is there. One of the reasons why. I have a call on your life as well. Now look, I'm never going to deliver Israelites from Egypt. Like I'm not going to run over there and start delivering people out of, uh, out of Egypt. It's not going to happen for me. Uh, David is called to be king of Israel or to take down a big giant. It's not going to happen for me. Or Daniel in the lion's den. I hope that God never calls me to do that, right? These kind of things. We see these calls all over. But what we're supposed to get from that is God is trying to over and over, and as he gives us all these examples, saying, I have a call on your life too. Do you believe that? Call, there's something for you to do. There's a plan. There's a purpose. There's something in your life that God is calling you to do. Reject the lies that it doesn't exist. We're told in the 139th Psalm, because I have knit you together. I mean, that's very special, intricate work. I have knit you together in your mother's womb for a purpose and for a plan. God has a purpose and a plan for every single one. That is the point of all that. All right, I'm going to conclude just by telling you a brief story. Uh, some of you know my foster brother, if you've been around for quite some time, some of you know my foster brother, uh, Jody. You've seen him here, talked to him, um, seen him around me or whatever. Uh, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. So uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, my parents read about Jody. Jody's birth mother had made some decisions when she was pregnant with Jody that have affected his life uh, all the way to this day. He lived the first 18 years in an institution. I'll never forget, uh, we took a number of visits to that institution before Jody actually came to live with us because we were going to be like that Barnabas. We were going to be that bridge between institution and group home was us, the foster parents. I'll never forget walking to the institution the first time. You know, it was all the people that I saw there was a little overwhelming for a 12-year-old. And it was difficult, uh, that transition, Jody first coming to live with us and just talking about you know, after living 18 years in institution only, about acting in public and all of these things, there were times that I'm thinking, this, ain't gonna, this is not going to work. You know, this is not going to work. And I didn't know if I wanted to work as a 12-year-old. But um, we, we struggled through with it. We did a lot of teaching, had to have a lot of patience. But uh, it was really a very, very wonderful, wonderful time. So I want to tell you just a couple stories about my brother Jody, and there's a reason why I'm telling you, and I'll, hopefully you can see that, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Jody uh, has been uh, a real joy to our family. So like, if somebody said to us, you know, has Jody, does he have a plan? Does, does God have a plan for Jody's life? Is there a purpose? People on the outside who don't really know him or know our family would debate that all over the place. But if you asked our family, if you ask the Sly family, we would say 100% yes. Because we have 
gained a whole new perspective on life. Life has taken on a deeper meaning. Uh, Jody has brought joy and laughter and significance to our lives that we would not have known without him. God has a plan and a purpose for his life. We'd say absolutely yes. Is that a tough life? A very tough life, but absolutely yes. When Jody first came to uh, live with us, coffee in an institution was the reward. Everything was rewarded by coffee. Now, some of you are saying that makes total sense. And yes, I can completely understand. I don't drink coffee, so it makes no sense to me. But I know people who do, and I know that people cannot live without coffee, believe me. So uh, when he first uh, came to live with us, you know, he would never turn down. Until this day, he'll never turn down a cup of coffee. You ask him what a cup of coffee, the answer will always be, I've never seen it, no. It's always been absolutely yes. I was home one day, and this was a turning point, you know, for me in my relationship with Jody and all the toughness, is that I was home. I had a friend there. We were about 12 years old. Uh, nobody else is home except for us and Jody. I said, Jody, I got this idea. I was going to play a prank on him, a friend and I. And this is the only cup of coffee I've ever made in my life. I said, you want to make a cup of coffee? The answer was yes. So I got a bunch of vanilla extract. And I put the vanilla extract in there, and I set his cup of coffee, my friend and I standing there, you know, ready for and put him at the dining room table, okay? And he takes a drink of that big, huge swallow of that coffee, all right? And he could do this really cool thing. He could roll his eyes back into his head. I'm 12 years old, all right? He could roll his eyes back, and all you would see is white. So he rolls his eyes back into his head. He staggers up from his chair. He takes a few steps towards the living room, and he falls down like a big tree falling that's just been cut. Boom. The whole house shakes. My friend screams, you've killed him. <laughs> killed, killed him. And he, my friend, he runs out of the house. And Jody gets up laughing. Turning point from my relationship with Jody. It's absolutely wonderful. I've told this uh, story before. Krista told me not to tell this story. Okay, I'm going to tell it anyway because it doesn't matter if I tell it or somebody else tells. I love to hear it. I can never hear this story enough. We're in this huge church in Florida with 5,000 people, and the pastor was describing this situation where you know if God prompts you to go to somebody else in church and say, hey, you know, you're going through a tough time. Let's go out. And the pastor put it this way, and the place is dead silent. He said. Just go to somebody after church this morning and say, would you like a cup of coffee? I'm sitting next to Jody. I'm about 15 years old. This is the greatest thing in the world that's ever happened to me. The pastor says that dead silence. Jody just launches like this space shuttle. Right here! Want a cup of coffee? You know, and this is great. My parents are dying, which made it even better. You know, these kind of things. CB radios, remember CB radios? Remember that in the late 70s when they were so incredibly popular and there was this movie about CB radios and all these and truckers and stuff like that. We took a trip to Florida on vacation. Jody disappeared. We know where it was. We had a CB radio. He figured out how to get in the car. He figured out how to turn that thing on. And he was on the most popular channel. And he loves microphones. And he's on there, breaking one nine, good buddy, good buddy, good buddy, come in, good buddy, come in. And just nonstop for about two minutes straight. And the truckers were just livid. They'd get that guy off there. And I walked up on that and I thought, this is awesome. This is just so fantastic. We were in uh, church uh, one day, and we had a missionary come speak to us. And this missionary wasn't like just a normal missionary. This was like a superstar celebrity missionary, very charismatic, phenomenal speaker, this guy. And we were having this dinner, and I happened to be at that moment, I was about 20-some years old, just sitting next to the guy, and we were talking about something. And Jody walks up, very solemn, sticks his hand out to the guy. The guy turns, 
puts his hand up, you know, and Jody looks at him and he says, I laid awake all night praying for you last night. And then turns and walks away. And the guy was like, whoa, you know, what was that all about? So we had many, many wonderful uh, experiences. Jody, uh, you could never give him a present that he wasn't excited about. You ever give a present to somebody and they just have no reaction? You're like, that stinks. I wish, I wish I never had to give you another present again. But I'm obligated to give you a present, so I'll have to do this. You know, you know what I'm saying? And you want a reaction? It's not going to happen with Jody every time. It doesn't matter if you're giving him a bicycle, and he loves bicycles. We taught him to ride a bike, and he loved to ride that bike, and he would jam the brakes on, you know, the, not with the, he would, and these deep skid marks all over us. People would come over and say, what is with these long black marks? Jody just love it. Anyway, anything you'd give him, whether it's a tube of toothpaste or it's a bicycle, he, his, he just lights up. It's the most incredible thing in the world. It's had a deep impact upon us. I'll never forget, it was a Saturday morning, happened right down the street from here at my house. I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. Around the breakfast table on a Saturday morning, Jody brought up the subject of Jesus. He'd been with us. He'd been going to church. He'd heard some stuff. It was sinking in more than we ever could have imagined. It was sinking in. And he brought it up, and he said, I would like to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He, he prayed in his own words to do that. And for the rest of the day, he had the biggest smile on his face. He was beaming. I'll never forget it. And I remember all day long, for the rest of that whole day, he kept pounding his heart and his chest right here. He said, Johnny, you know, Jesus is right in here. I can feel him. He's in me. And he said it probably a hundred times throughout the day, over and over again. Last week was his birthday, and uh, we celebrated that. Uh, and I'm just going to have him... He's going to come over here. He's here uh, for just a second. Say hi. Everybody welcome Jody. All right. <laughs> all right. It's good. Yeah. Hold on to the pulpit like you're going to preach. That's good. Uh, all, uh, here's what I want to say. I want to go back to what I said a few seconds ago. If you ask us as Jody's family, does God have a plan for his life and a purpose? I'm telling you, the Sly family would unreservedly say 100%, absolutely. He's changed our lives. God has used Jody in a phenomenal way to change who we are. Paul had a very tough life, everybody. Jody's life hasn't been the easiest. Your life hasn't been the easiest. But here's the bottom line that I want you to hear. God has a plan for Paul. God has a plan for Jody. God has a plan for you. I can't encourage you enough. Some of you are desperately waiting for God's will to happen in your life. Do not allow something as simple as your schedule to keep you from it. And do not allow the, the lies that the enemy brings your way to keep you from that either. Before you leave today, please consider planning a time in the desert. Please consider ignoring all those lies. Please consider visiting our prayer team over here to have somebody pray with you. There are great and wonderful things, wonderful things that God wants to do in your life. But there is a process that we see clearly in the Bible that has to be followed before that's going to happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for Jody. I thank you, God, for uh, the purpose and the plan that you have for his life and how that's impacted my life and my family's life. I thank you for every person in this room and that you have a wonderful, wonderful plan for their lives. 
God, I pray that all of us would be able to respond to you in whatever way we need to respond to you this morning so that your good and perfect will could take place in our lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.